0: Good morning. To begin with a question. And the question is quite simple. Have you ever gotten fed up with a story? Like fed up, or maybe with a character within a story, within a book, or within a TV show, or within a movie, where there's just this character, maybe this plot point or the setting of the story, something about it you just can't seem to get your head around. It leads you to either be confused or maybe even angry or frustrated or just outright fed up, just done with the whole thing. I know for some of us uh, who were raised on Star Wars, that then coming into the prequel ages, Jar Jar Binks was the closest thing, the the example that comes to mind of being confused, exhausted, annoyed, and even angry, outright despaired at the future of the, uh, at the time was the prequel trilogy. Now, being fed up with a story is something that you've likely experienced. Some book, some movie, some show, some character, some setting, some plot point that just you couldn't get your head around. And, and it almost led to that tension point where you're, I'm, I'm going to quit reading or watching this. I was watching a cartoon this past week with my three going on four as of this week. Happy birthday, Emma. A four-year-old this week. And within minutes of watching this show, you realize quite quickly the main character set before these children is absolutely awful. Though depicted as a cute cartoon character, this this figure was mean and arrogant and greedy and just downright, like why would anyone set this character forward as, as a protagonist, as the main character of this story, in particular for kids? I don't want my child watching and taking cues from this character. There was this desire, even watching my, des- my daughter watching this character to turn it off. I don't want my kid to take any lessons from this, this confusion, exhaustion. Who would make this show for kids? Now, the reality was though Emma didn't know the story, this was her first time watching it, I knew what was going to happen with this little cartoon character. I knew what was coming, that there was going to be an interruption to the story in the form of three spirits coming on Christmas Eve. Yes, I'm talking about Scrooge, but in particular, Scrooge McDuck, who his interruption that came brought a whole transformation, not only to the setting and to the story, but this character that then turned, this character that just moments ago, I was outright, you know, in like how could anybody be watching this? Despair over would actually become something that was quite enjoyable and actually a great picture, a great story there. But without interruption, Scrooge, much like the story of the Grinch, or so many Christmas stories are like the protagonist is the bad guy, and then it switches. Scrooge or the Grinch, without an interruption that shakes everything up, the story continue. It would just continue in this dismal, depressing tale of despair where people would get fed up and rage quit either the book or the show. Have you ever gotten fed up with a story like that? Have you ever gotten fed up with your own story like that? Are you your own Scrooge, your own Grinch, your own Jar Jar Binks? Maybe you're annoyed with the story of your life and the protagonist's consistent failures and weaknesses. I'm talking about your own. Maybe you're exhausted with your story's supporting cast in the form of your family, your friends, your roommate, your spouse, your children. Maybe you're angry with the setting of your story. Like, who would write a story in 2020? that we had these killer bee hornets. It's like this weird side plot point that just disappeared from the, the season. of The season 2020 that is your life is so many different confusing plot points that drop in and drop out. Who would write a story like this? America and all that we've gone through over this past year with the election cycles and the conversations about race and police brutality, Like all of these conversations that were happening. Who would write a story like this? We are angry with the setting that we find ourselves in. Or maybe we're just downright confused with the plot of our story story, these winding and shifting back and forth over this past year of loss and rejection, the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one, isolation and loneliness. Who would write a story like this? You see, our deepest desire is to enjoy the lives that we have, the stories that we inhabit, but what can we do when we're fed up, we're confused, and we're exhausted with the stories? that we find ourselves in, either the protagonist, the supporting cast, the setting, or the plot. The book of Isaiah is a lot like Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. And it's saying that it's also a lot like your story and mine. If you are binging the book, by chapter 34 of Isaiah, you are ready to rage quit out of despair and disgust over what you've been looking at. Over these 34 chapters, Isaiah prophesies over the the life of Israel, the people of God, and everything has fallen apart. Nothing is working. The debris of injustice throughout the land, the wreckage of religious pretenders continues. And at chapter 34, if you've gotten that far, in one sitting, you are just outright, done. But just in time to prevent you from quitting chapter 34 in the book of Isaiah altogether comes the miraculous interruption that is Isaiah 35. And like Scrooge's visit from the spirit of Christmas yet to come, it is a vision of the future. Isaiah 35, what we're about to read today is a flash forward. The official word is a prolepsis, which is just fun to say. You know these, these happen in stories all the time. An interruption to the already ongoing uh, story, which takes us into an experience of the future as if it presently exists or is already accomplished. Flash forwards, prolepsis, you know, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is used to set the stakes of a story and oftentimes also used to relieve the tension as it builds up within a story to keep you from feeling overly exhausted or confused. And so like in the Christmas carol, the flash forward that happens in the ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come is setting the stakes for him. You know, Him seeing his own grave in the grave of Tiny Tim. Or the one that comes to mind immediately for me is Terminator 2 with Sarah Connor, you know, at the park, and she's up against the chain link fences. That you know, the bombs go off, and the, it's setting the stakes of the rest of the movie. Or uh, we just finished watching the season uh, two uh, finale of Fargo last week, and there's right in the um, it's the final episode of the season. There is a flash forward that relieves all the tension of all the action and the violence and the destruction that's happening. That gives us a breath of fresh air and sets the stakes for what what is. What's what's it? What's at the, what are the stakes? What's at risk of being lost here? See, flash forwards are used in all of these varying ways. We know them. There's stories for days. I I texted uh, Andrew Prabasco. He's a part of collective part. One of our board members is just like, hey, talk to me about, you know, flash forwards. And he just listed all of them. You've got Lost, you've got the actual flash forward TV show with the flash that he runs around time. So he's able to like go into the future and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it may be, flash forwards come as an interruption that brings the future into the present. When it happens in a story, it sets the stakes. Sometimes it relieves the tension. So bringing this back to Isaiah, As a prophetic flash forward, Isaiah 35 is an interruption, not only in the book of Isaiah, but in your and I stories. In all of the despair, the being fed up of our own stories we may have, Isaiah 34 is an interruption if we receive it today. Something that can relieve some of the tension, but at the same time set the stakes of the lives and the stories that we're within. My prayer is that through looking at this passage today, we might experience a transformation here in this year of confusion, despair of anger and exhaustion. That this might relieve some of the tension of you being fed up with your own story today. It might set the stakes of why consistency and faith and continuing in this story is worth it. And my prayer is that like Ebenezer Scrooge, because of today, it might be said of each of us as uh, Charles Dickens ended a Christmas carol, that he knew how to keep Christmas well, that today this work might invite us to keep Christmas well, to keep it with hope and love and peace. And today as we're focusing on joy. And so my notes as always are there in the chat, you can open those and follow along. Well, let's read Isaiah chapter 35 and then we'll get into our time together today. Isaiah 35, the prophet writes, "'The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad.'" The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, like the lily. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. The land rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. He's talking about these beautiful places that are now being given to all the land. They shall see the glory of the Lord. Now referring to his people. They shall see his glory and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy." for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they they won't lose their way. They will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be like a crown on their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Father, here in this Isaiah 35 interruption, we have a flash forward. Got a message of hope and of joy. And so we pray that today you might help us to receive this vision as our own. Help us to see Isaiah's perception of the present and the joy that he has that comes from his hope in the future, but now is experienced in the present. In all of this, Father, may we see your son given to us as the source of this joy and hope. In your name we pray, amen. And so in Isaiah 35, what we just read was a flash forward. Did you catch that? I mean, hopefully you did with all of the shalls and wills, all of that future tense language that what Isaiah is talking about is something that's going to happen in the future. But in doing that, Isaiah actually lays out in no uncertain terms, his poetic, prophetic perception of the present. In order for all the shall things to happen in him talking about what hap- what's that's happening to, he's actually talking about what the present is. And what's the language that he uses for the, his present, for his current experience? It's that language we saw over and over again throughout Isaiah 35 of a wilderness, of a desert, of a dry land, of burning sand, of thirsty ground, a haunt of jackals, of lions and ravenous beasts. Isaiah's perception is that this is our present tense, that we live our lives in an inhospitable wasteland that's desolate and lonely and abandoned. This is the present tense for Isaiah. It's a place with unclean people, unholy, broken, unjust people with with unclean, this language of things like blood and disease and death. It is a place of both physical and spiritual as we saw blindness and deafness of paralysis and muteness. With all of this as our setting, it's no wonder as we puts it at the end there in verse 10, that what we live now is lives within sorrow and sighing. Isaiah talks about his present tense, but we realize how much he's also talking about our own. Living within 2020, this is a wilderness, an exile year as we've talked about in the past. And it leaves us with Isaiah, as he says in verse three and four, weak hands, feeble knees and anxious hearts. This language of talking about us having weak hands is more than just weak hands. It's language poetic for our strength, for our actions. When that strength is gone, saying we have weak hands is a way of talking about depression, this idea of this almost Paralysis of being able to make decisions and embark on anything within our lives. Talking about having weak knees is the strength of persistence to continue on the journey of life. When our knees are giving out, it's exhaustion. And then he talks about anxious hearts. So weak hands and feeble knees, anxious hearts. He's talking about our anxiety, our depression and our exhaustion. 2020 has seen a a doubling of clinical anxiety and depression within the States at one third now of all Americans. And that's kind of some of the leading cases within data. Most of that is still being gathered to understand what this year has done to our mental health, to our anxiety, our depression, and our exhaustion. The data is still coming in. And we don't really need to see the data, though, because we feel it. We are depressed, exhausted, anxious. As Isaiah puts it, we are sorrowful and sighing in the wilderness. This is our present tense. And whatever Isaiah may say in the rest of his little 30, you know, chapter 35 interruption flash forward, the one thing you cannot call Isaiah today is dishonest. Whatever his vision for the future, it is deeply connected to your and mine, our very real experience in the present. This language of the wilderness this language of being parched because there's just, there's no water, of never feeling safe because of the, the idea of these ravenous beasts and jackals that are always coming up, that whenever you close your eyes for a minute, you're not sure if your campground is safe. This is all poetic language, but it's very real. and It's honest about what we're experiencing which makes it even more challenging when we realize that 12, more than 12 times, Isaiah talks about joy in chapter 35, more than any other chapter. This is the joyful interruption in Isaiah's writings. And it immediately calls us to see a contrast between Isaiah's vision of joy and our common understandings of happiness. You see, for us, happiness is an emotional reaction to our happenings. You can thank Lorenzo for putting it that way that happiness is a reaction to our happenings. And whatever Isaiah is talking about here is actually not in the absence of the wilderness, but it's actually in the midst of it. For most of us, when we think about happiness and elated feelings and emotional highs, is we think in most terms about an avoidance of the wilderness feelings. This idea of avoiding the feelings and the emotions of being in the wilderness, avoiding the feelings of sorrow and sighing, even though that's where we live, is one of the most prominent ways that we've been making it through this year, I think. Finding some sense of happiness that is an escape or an ignorance ignorance of our present. And the ways that you and I, and I hear this, not this is not Ryan coming, this is us. The ways that we have done this over the year are legion. For some of us, it is going after the drug of choice, whatever that may be. For some of us, it is porn. For some of it, it is even within marriage, still seeing sexuality as, as the one place that I'm gonna have an overabundant focus on as a se- source of safety and um, avoidance of the reality that I feel like my whole world is falling apart. The, the, the ways are legion. One of the more prominent ones is entertainment within this past year. Within this past year, 2020, as we've made it through this. Uh, pandemic, and even just 2020, where we are culturally throughout history has led to uh, what one writer in the um, New Yorker referred to as ambient television. This was his review of the new show on Netflix, Emily in Paris. Ambient television, he defined as television that was made for staring at your phone with plots too thin to ever be confusing. It is entertainment that is merely meant to be in the background while you go about your day. It is there to keep you from being present as you go into your phone. Even more than that, the endless feed mentality within our social media that's picked up has been a continuation of this whether that's TikTok, which that's their whole basis of the app is a continuous feed, or Instagram with their new you know, story stuff that now has moved the create button from the center of the app. Now it is gone and that the opening button that your brain is wired to go to when you want to post something is now the stories where you get caught up in feed after feed after feed and then three hours go by and it's two in the morning. That doesn't come from personal experience. Or even Twitter introducing fleets. Like everybody's just doing it now. Whatever it might be, the whole idea is that social media entertainment, what they are offering is all of these different avenues where our attention can be taken off of the sorrow and sighing. And though we hate the sort of lives that it's giving us where we become these sort of entertainment drones is we're actually at the same time, very much okay with it because we hate our present tense. So we may hate the fact that our screen time continues to go up, but we're kind of okay in the, pre- in the present tense because we hate our present tense so much. Eugene Peterson said in 1980, the enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of our depletion of joy. Entertainment is only one example, though maybe I spent a little more time on it. I mean, you can find it within shopping as well. Well, We'll go on to uh, Ikea or we'll go on to Amazon or whatever business that we go after. It's Christmas specifically hyper brings all this out where we shop, 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 and we buy in some sense to make ourselves feel happy. And then we realize we have far too much stuff and now we're not happy. We hate our present even more because we have so much junk. And so then Marie Kondo comes in and helps us toss out all the stuff that doesn't spark joy, all of it is an avoidance of the feelings of our lives, of our sorrow and sighing. And the fact is, Isaiah mentions this joy a dozen times, all within the context, not in the avoidance or absence of the wilderness experience. And so Isaiah understands his present. He's attentive to it. Whatever he's giving us in the coming moments, as we look at Isaiah further, his movement of joy is not in the avoidance Like some religious people do, where we put on a happy face and we walk within an ignorance and we pretend that we don't see the people living within the gutter or realize our own lives being in some sense in that gutter as well. Isaiah sees it for what it really is. And so, in order to receive Isaiah's joy, so must we. But under that underwhelming reality, overwhelming reality of Isaiah's and our present tense not being okay with the happiness that comes from avoiding our sorrow and suffering. Isaiah speaks to that sorrow and suffering with this flash forward. And this flash forward, like um, if you've ever seen uh, Amy Adams, the movie Arrival, which is incredible. This is a spoiler, but sorry, it's been out for too long now. But the whole movie is a setup of all of these flashbacks that are actually disguised in the narrative of the story as a flash forward. And you don't realize that these flashbacks where these flashbacks were actually flash, these flash forwards were actually flashbacks until the end of the movie. I know that's confusing, but the whole idea is that it's flashbacks in her story that are disguised as flash forwards. Isaiah 35 similarly is a flash forward disguised as a flashback. What am I talking about? When you read over Isaiah 35, did you mention all of this, what is going to happen language is the two primary ways he talks about it is a flood and an exodus. If you remember back from the opening chapters of Genesis, this flood that came in God's judgment, you know, and it wipes and starts the world over. It's like there's this new flood in Isaiah 35, but it's a reversal where instead of judgment and death coming down from the heavens, it's grace and life. This flood that turns the wilderness desert of our present into a garden. The other language that he uses in uh, verses eight and nine is that of the exodus, of the ransomed and the redeemed, just like Israel coming out of their slavery into Egypt on a road trip through the wilderness to God's holy mountain. Isaiah looks back to look forward. And so he sees this flood of glorious life, this cosmic exodus, all as a poetic description of what he says in verse three and four, when God comes and saves his people. This is when eyes and ears are opened to the glory and majesty of God, when legs that could not move are now leaping, when mouths that could not speak are now seeing, when the sorrow and sighing that follows us all the days of our lives now flees and God's people are crowned with eternal joy. The response of all creation to God showing up This cosmic flood of grace and life, this new Exodus is all of creation and all of God's people, both at the beginning of chapter 35 and at the end are singing with joy and gladness. This is Isaiah's vision. It is one that does not come and pretending that the world is not as dark as it really is, but speaks to that and from that darkness gives a vision for the future. But like any good flash forward, it needs to give enough details to encourage us to continue in the story, but not spoil it. So the question for Isaiah and for his audience is how will this all come about? How will God come and save? Now, just like Arrival came out a few years ago, the spoiler to this story came out 2000 years ago, 700 from Isaiah. This all came together in what we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks with Christmas. Christmas. Did you know that at the birth of Jesus, his name, Jesus, means God saves. In Matthew 1, we read that you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He is God saving us. He is God coming and saving us. Even more than that, Hebrews 1 says that he is, like we read, the visible glory and majesty of God descended from heaven. His whole ministry, if you've been looking with us in the gospel of Mark over this past year, has been what? Healing of the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute. Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah 35 in Matthew 11 to describe himself. Jesus identified himself as the life-giving water that flows down from heaven, that is springing up this new garden of Eden over all the earth. Jesus identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life, the way being, the holy way, the highway to the Father that Isaiah sees here. Zechariah. John the Baptist's dad from early on in the gospels, when he hears about the birth of Jesus, he looks over uh, John the Baptist and, and seeing his son's work about being Jesus is the one who comes who will redeem Israel. Do you see the language of Isaiah 35 continues? And even Jesus talking about his death on the cross says that he has come to give his life as the ransom for many. Do you see the redeemed and the ransomed, the highway that leads to life and to joy, healing, all of this is coming together within the Christmas story, within the person of Jesus. And this is why at Jesus's birth, out while the shepherds were tending to their sheep, the angels appear and they are singing with good news of great exceeding joy. Isaiah's poetic prophecy, 700 years later, is fulfilled in the advent, the Christmas story, the arrival of Jesus Christ. This is a transformative. If we allow this to be a source of joy that in the midst of this wilderness world that we're living within, there is the arrival of everything that we've been waiting for. Like he says in verse four, that we can be strong and fear not because behold, our God has come and has saved us. A source of joy, no matter what we're going through. But if you're like me, here's the hang up. If this has happened 2000 years ago, then why hasn't this happened? I'm still in exile. We're still in 2020. We're still living in the wilderness. This seems to be, okay, maybe at least partially true, but it doesn't seem to be fully true. This question is one that continually weighs on many of us. As we read stories of Christmas joy and life and salvation and new heavens and new earth, and it all seems to be fulfilled 2000 years ago, but here we are two millennia removed and we're still feeling overwhelmed with sorrow and sighing. If you're with me and feeling that, you're not alone. Just a moment ago, I mentioned Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who beginning with his ministry, saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these stories. And yet as his life went on, he found himself imprisoned. Asking similar questions of why am I in prison if Jesus truly is the fulfillment of all of this, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And there in prison, even John the Baptist begins to get fed up with the story that he's a part of, it seems. Despair and confused. See, what we find is that happiness is not based on In the avoidance, like we talked about a minute ago, but it seemed that John the Baptist and many of us also seem to think that happiness or joy is only experienced in the absence of sorrow and pain, the absence of exile, that happiness and joy and enjoying our story can only happen when our present circumstances allow. John the Baptist's way of being here is also found within many of us who believe that Christian happiness is predicated on our circumstances. Some level of meaning that if God is truly come to save us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then things like prison and pandemics and death and exile and wilderness and rejection, these things ought not be the case. And the problem is, is that many Christians can live within this way of being, at least for a few years, depending on their level of privilege, whatever language you want to use. And something happens that at some point sorrow comes, whether it's John the Baptist being in prison or a pandemic that lasts nine months and most likely even longer, whatever it might be, the loss of work, the loss of family members, the the, the tension, the realization of the history of the injustice within this world, whatever it might be, that when that comes together and happiness is taken away because of the present tense, it destroys faith altogether because that faith was dependent on the absence of sorrow. And so maybe you're not someone who's been overly uh, running around with an avoidance of the suffering and sighing of this world. Maybe you've linked your happiness solely in its absence. And so maybe you're like John the Baptist and you feel like you've been in prison this year asking the same question, is Jesus really the Christ if I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing? Jesus has a conversation with some messengers from John. You can read about all this in Matthew 11 if you'd like to this week. And he sends these messengers back with a quotation from Isaiah 3, 5 and 6, 35, what we just read, verses 5 and 6. That I have come, yes, to do all these things, but then he says, happy, joyful, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus says, blessed and happy is the one who does not stumble over their assumptions of what me coming looks like, what my advent, my arrival of Isaiah 35 being fulfilled actually looks like. I found within myself and within many of us is that when we get fed up with our own stories as Christians, or maybe we get fed up with the Jesus story altogether, it's because of the fact that we are stumbling on account of Jesus and not so much Jesus, but our perception of what we think following him will look like. We think it's going to mean the absence of sorrow and sighing. And so like John the Baptist, we lose all of our faith the moment that those things arrive. With John the Baptist, they're in prison. What we need to receive in our kind of prison that is 2020 is that this fulfillment, Jesus doing this work, is not going to look like the way that we think it will. And though Advent was this movement, this Advent was decisive 2,000 years ago, it is not completed. And Isaiah 35 even points to this reality that though it's been inaugurated and kicked off, it is already, it is not yet fully done. Did you notice the twice use of the language of blossoming? And then the other primary metaphor for what this kingdom thing is gonna be like when God comes and saves is that of a progressive road trip journey on the highway of holiness both of the portraits and pictures are a blossoming that does not happen overnight and a journey, whatever this movement is, this joy and moment that the ransoming returning all of this vision in the midst of the wilderness and exile is going to be a progressive work that will not, that yes, it will be decisive, but it also is a future fulfillment Uh, to use the language of what we did back in first Peter over a year ago is that this story of what John the Baptist didn't understand and why it led him to despair and what you and I need to hold on to, otherwise we will fall into a similar despair, is that Isaiah 35 will happen. It is happening and it has happened. It will happen. It has happened. It is happening. This is a future vision, but it's also a past vision because it happened in the advent of Jesus and it's also presently happening. How's that for like an arrival science fiction? All of this is all happening right now. And if we think that because it has happened, that we don't have to go through sorrow and sighing. Like John the Baptist, we're going to find ourselves fed up with our own stories. But if we do receive Jesus's vision of here of how he understood this, Isaiah's vision of this being a progressive work, a a blossoming that's happening in the midst of the wilderness, like Uncle Scrooge after his vision from the, um, the ghost of Christmas future, what are we to do with this vision of Christmas future? How do we live within a blossoming desert? Because all of 35 is all future tense, that this shall happen and this shall happen and this shall happen. What does this actually mean for us today right here in the presence as we make our way on that journey? You see, all of it is present tense, except, except right in the middle. Verses three and four. All of Isaiah 35 is shall and will its future. But then right in the middle, Isaiah sets before us his assumed or maybe prescribed response to this hope, this vision of the future. What was it? To strengthen weak hands, to make firm. You see that's present tense language. Make firm, feeble, weak knees. Say to those with anxious hearts, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. As uh, Eugene Peterson puts it in, as Kingfisher's Catch Fire. For you who have lost interest in your own story because it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. For you who are displeased with your story because it doesn't seem to be working out fairly. For you who are tired of your story because it's gone on too long without your getting anything out of it. Put yourself here in the Isaiah 35 story. This is the present tense. God's personal gift. Be strong, fear not. Behold your God, he will come and save you. You see the defiant decision to live within that strength, within that fearlessness of three and four, what we just read a moment ago, the defiant decision to live in that sort of way of a strengthens hands and to make firm uh, feeble knees and to say to our anxious hearts to be strong and do not fear. This decision is summarized in the word Joy. You see, joy is the defiant decision to live in the midst of a wilderness, in the midst of a desert when it is parched land. And it seems like it's nothing but sorrow and sighing. Joy is the defiant response of hope in the midst of those circumstances. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, that we rejoice in our hope. Or as he says in Philippians, that we have joy because we are in the faith or in Proverbs 10 verse 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy. If you have hope, the defiant response in the midst of the wilderness is joy. And this is why we did this week after hope last week because they build off one another. You see, Isaiah's vision here and what he's calling us to is that joy does not depend on circumstances, but your perspective. Joy does not depend on your circumstances, but your perspective. Yes, happiness can come and go with your circumstances. There are seasons of great happiness. Like when I'm sitting on the couch eating a giant bag, maybe this is more avoidance than actual happiness, eating a giant bag of pretzel M&Ms, right? Watching the Mandalorian. Yes, that happiness is there, but that happiness comes and goes as soon as I realize how many M&Ms I've eaten and I've finished the episode. Happiness comes and goes with circumstances, Joy is based on a perspective. This is why the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is despair, a lack of vision for the future, being fed up with the story. You see, when you believe that Jesus's love has overcome, is overcoming and will ultimately overcome all the wilderness of this world and even death itself, joy becomes the reasonable response, even in the wilderness, even in exile, even in something like 2020. that's why joy is the fruit of the spirit. And so this joy comes not out of the avoidance of our suffering or the absence of our exile. It's in the midst of it all because it's blossoming right here in the midst of it. Or as the apostle Paul puts in Second Corinthians chapter 6, that we as Christians can simultaneously and are simultaneously full of sorrow yet rejoicing. a joy that's not based in our circumstances, but is able to withstand and actually move in the midst of being full of sorrow and all that 2020 has for us is available. It is here for us today. Because like I said, though happiness may be a reaction to your circumstances and I'm not down on happiness, joy is a defiant decision against the wilderness experience. And so just as we close to make this super practical, because the spiritual practice of joy is celebration is celebration, a few really practical ways to bring this home over the next few weeks. And then we'll, we'll move into a time of response. First is we are a few weeks away from Christmas. I want to encourage you to give as much, if not more time to think through and plan how are you going to celebrate more than what you're going to give or get in putting together your, your, uh, your lists to think through how can I in the midst of 2020, almost defiantly against the sorrow and sighing that I'm experienced, speak to that anxiety, that exhaustion, and that depression. I am celebrating and remembering that in Jesus, the Lord has come and saved me and he's going to do it again. As we move towards the new year, before you start working on all your resolutions of how you're going to try to get better or whatever, would you just stop and spend an hour maybe with a journal and a pen and just write out and celebrate the blossoms of life, the baby steps that you've made on the holy highway over this past year. Similarly, the only command, and interestingly in Isaiah 35, is to strengthen the weak hands, to make firm the knees of the feeble, to say to those who have an anxious heart, the one command in this passage is communal. Communal. It does not say to strengthen your own weak hands. It does not say to make make firm your own feeble knees. It does not say to encourage to yourself, but rather this is calling for one another. Joy is a team sport. And this is difficult within something like 2020, within the pandemic, within the new, you know, stay at home orders coming together. It may be more difficult than normal. But may you find ways to do this within whether that's those that you live with or within your discipleship group or neighborhood dinner, even if it's over Zoom, that you might find a way to care for and encourage to make strong those with anxious hearts. And at the same time, we wanna take the full depth of what it means to strengthen those who are weak, not just to over-spiritualize it, but also to see that though it may be speaking and does, yes, speak to those within the community of us encouraging one another, also included within this is strengthening weak hands, a call towards generosity and justice. These are the practical ways that we celebrate. Joy shows itself in generosity. Because like I said, it's a decision that's based on hope. When in the midst of our despair, what we want to do is hoard and look out for ourselves. A concern for generosity and justice can only be motivated by a hope that this world is not all that it is. And that actually my generosity is somehow a sign and symbol of the fact that this world is going to look differently. And so generosity is one of the ways that we can do that. Embarking on works of justice, like some of you have done with Claire's Adoption. Joy is the motivating factor behind justice and generosity. William Wilberforce, who contributed to abolition movements within the UK, kept coming back to the fact that it was joy that had to be the main motivator. Otherwise the work was too dark. It would eat him up alive. Mother Teresa working in Calcutta would teach um, those working with her and actually enforce it as a rule for her people as they were caring for the least of these with some of the worst situations that they could ever imaginable. She made it a requirement that everyone smile as often as they could, not to be fake, but to realize that joy is the motivating factor behind all of the life. It is what hope looks like embodied. And three times we saw within this, three times in Isaiah 35, the response of joy is singing. Three times is singing, singing, singing he speaks to. And so over this past week or next week, this may mean that you put together a playlist of all of your favorite Christmas hymns. And I'm not talking about like, you know, all I want for Christmas is you. I'm talking about songs that talk about the powerful work of what God is doing within this broken world. And then you belt that out at the top of your lungs. And and what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to actually do that. And my encouragement is you may not be the sort of person that over the past nine months, that when we do these songs, maybe you sit and you listen to them be washed over you, or that you maybe just go and get lunch and start to work in the kitchen or whatever. With you, whether you're with your family or you're there by yourself, I want to encourage you to sing these songs, to belt it out. You're alone you're not sitting next to anybody here at Playa Studio. You've got to worry about somebody overhearing the fact that you can't sing. You're with, your kids hear you in the shower. You're, the people that live above you hear you when you're, you're singing while you're cooking. That you might this is, this is the response of joy. Singing is a way of getting our hearts to believe something that our minds are having a hard time with. And so may we embark in the practice of celebration as we seek to be a people who have joy that is not based on our circumstances, but in the hope that in the midst of this wilderness, there is blossoming a new world and all of that has come about because of what happened in Jerusalem in a manger 2,000 years ago. Let's pray.